I'll be reading from Mark 10, starting in verse 32. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and he will deliver him, and, and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. And calling to them, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Good morning, everyone. As Allie was reading that, you may have been saying to yourself, this sounds familiar. Uh, if you've been working uh, through the series with us of following the servant, we're in a stage here where Christ is trying to teach his disciples an important spiritual lesson. And he does it in Mark 8:31. He predicts his death. Peter then responds, uh, takes Jesus to the side and rebukes him, which not a good thing. Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Mark chapter 9, same verse, interestingly, 31. Jesus also predicts his death. The disciples at that point, basically their response was they were confused, they didn't know, and they just didn't want to talk about it anymore. So here we're in this cycle of Jesus predicting his death and in those three predictions each one he gives a little bit more information and here in our text he gives the fullest. Most importantly though each of his predictions end with and after three days I will rise again. I want to emphasize that and repeat that, knowing that this is our Passion Week and Easter will be celebrated next Sunday. After three days, I will rise again. So Jesus is trying to convey very important spiritual principles, but the disciples are not getting it. So it begs the question, why aren't they getting it? You know, they're resisting Jesus. 
They're fighting this truth that he is trying to convey to them. And if you look at it and you follow the text you just read through and based on James and John's question, which is somewhat of a bizarre question, you'll realize that the, the heart of the issue, why they can't see the spiritual truth that is confronting them, is due to pride. It is due to pride. And I think, you know, the call to action in this series is to follow Jesus and serve him well. So I think the fact that the disciples have missed this, they're traveling and spending three years with our Lord, should be a sobering warning to all of us. Because if you think about it, they also love Jesus, right? They believed in him. They believed in his kingdom, although they reinterpreted it a little bit through their own materialistic view. They are saved, they are regenerated, yet at the, at the inner core, the disciples are infected with pride. So due to their own personal desires and desires for greatness, for exaltation, it has caused a blind spot in their life. And they can't see the truths that Jesus is trying to convey to them. To show you the degree of this blind spot that they had in our life. Luke chapter 22, verse 24, perhaps if you're reading through maybe a passion story this week, you'll come across that. That is the upper room. Jesus has just celebrated communion with them, shared the cup, broke the bread, and two verses later, it says that the disciples were arguing amongst each other as to whom would be the greatest. So my message to all of us, including myself, is pride in the heart dies hard. So let's go ahead and walk through this text here in verses 32 through 34. We'll take it in two chunks. When you think about 32, the verses 32 and 34, as your alley read through it, I want us to summarize it in two words, place and plan. It involves a place and a plan. The place, in verse 32, says they were going up to Jerusalem. And the plan is the plan of God redeeming his people. When you see there it says going up to Jerusalem, you know, they're actually coming. They're on the eastern side of the Jordan, so literally they're going up. They're near Jericho, and those who love biblical facts... The city of Jericho, to this day, is the lowest point on earth that's inhabited a city. So, with Jerusalem being 2,500 feet above sea level, for those who like to climb and do the things, they've got a trek ahead of them, nearly uh, 3,000 to 3,500 feet that they need to go up to Jerusalem. And I know Evan mentioned a psalm. There's a series of 15 psalms that are known as the Ascent Psalms that the Jews would sing as they would make pilgrimage and celebrate the the feast as they would make their way up to Jerusalem. So, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it is the story of the last week of Jesus' life. And Mark will dedicate the final six chapters uh, of what occurs 
in Jerusalem. Notice who is with Jesus in verse 32. There's actually two sets of people that are with him. I would characterize them. There's the they that are the disciples, and there are those. And those would be a larger contingent of followers that are following Jesus. It's interesting, the text says they had two different reactions from what's going on. The disciples, it says, they were amazed. Um, and then the, uh, those followers, it says they were fearful. Your text may say afraid. And the word literally means essentially a type of confused fear. Now the disciples were amazed that because they knew what Jesus just said and what was awaiting him in Jerusalem. So, and what is awaiting in Jerusalem? Jesus will be dead, crucified in a matter of days. The religious and Roman authorities are waiting for him. One commentator kind of trying to summarize the mixed emotions here. You can see that the, the tension that is in the air, so to speak. He says, there must have been something about the bearing of Jesus, the look in his eyes, the manner of his walk that explains the complex emotions of his followers. Look also, interestingly enough, it says uh, in verse 32 that Jesus was walking ahead of them. The first time Mark says that, it might be the only time Jesus is pictured with his disciples where he is pictured leading them, much like a shepherd leading his sheep. And I think that's an important thing. In fact, when Jesus left Galilee to make this long trek to Jerusalem, Luke 9:51 says he re resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem because he knew that he was going to die for us and it needed to occur in Jerusalem. So I just want to point that out because Easter week, sometimes you flip through some channels, you get some theologians, some pseudo-theologians, and they'll try to explain what occurred. And what occurred was an unfortunate you know, circumstances, course of events that cascaded and, and somehow ended up in Jesus' death. That there's nothing that could be further from the truth. In fact, what you see here outlined in Scripture for us, and what Jesus is walking out ahead of them, with his face resolutely focused on Jerusalem, is essentially God's plan from eternity past. And that plan that God himself would die for us has been progressively revealed to us in Scripture. The first encounter we see it, God didn't wait. Immediately after they fell, in Genesis 3.15, theologians call it the Proto-Evangelium. Proto mean the first, Evangelium meaning the gospel. It's the first inclination that God is going to move on our behalf. It's a bit <laughs> cryptic, but it says essentially God speaking to Satan, saying that, and once again this is after the fall, there is going to come someone that from this woman's seed and this individual, speaking of the Messiah, Satan, he will crush your head. He will destroy you. But you will crush his heel. There will be a slight victory in the sense that you think you have won through the, when Jesus is crucified. But ultimately, Jesus is the victor. It was pictured as you, hopefully you're going through a, 
you read through the Bible plan, you probably just came through Exodus, Leviticus. All of those sacrifices are a picture to us, an illustration of God's plan from eternity past. Think of it. All the millions of gallons of blood that had been shed in the course of human history from the Old Testament could never take away our sins from God. But they're a picture for us. This plan of God was repeatedly foretold by the prophets. It was announced when Jesus was born to, to Joseph himself when he said in Matthew 1, Mary will bear a son and you shall, should name him Jesus for he shall save his people from his sins. The plan is moving forward. To the shepherds, a savior has, born, has been born today in the city of David. And this plan becomes more progressive and rolled out. Jesus begins his public ministry, is baptized by John the Baptist. Next day, what does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, essentially to utter three words. And those three words are, it is finished. The plan of God that was set in eternity past has reached its apex, and we'll celebrate that next week symbolically. But you see, in verse 32, it also says, and again he took the twelve aside. This is the third time he's going to explain to him what will happen to him. And you see there in verse 33, it adds a little bit more detail if you were to compare to 8 and 9. But essentially, is Jesus is marching forward to his own death. And you, you see this re- repetition of telling. And you say, like, how did the disciples miss this? Because when, when Jesus was crucified, I mean, they, they ran. They ran. And even right now, they fully don't understand it. You know, it's funny because Scripture does not hold back from presenting the moral failures of biblical characters. You know, in some way that helps us because to a certain degree we can see ourselves in the individuals that we see in Scripture. You know, I think it could be um, a message to ourselves that we too can be missing things that God is clearly presenting to us, perhaps in neon lights, over and over again. God wants us to do this. He wants us to move in this direction. He wants us to believe in a certain, certain way. But we too, I think we, we can get, we can reject it. It's just, it just in one ear, out the other. I'll give you an illustration. I, my wife and I, we have a car. It's 20 years old. We love it. It runs great. 20 years old, just past 250,000 miles. You know, and it seems like, like every 10,000 miles there's a, there's a celebration. At least I do. Uh, as you can see, I, I lead a very exciting life. <laughs> 10,000 miles, let's throw a party. Uh, but months ago, I was in the uh, shop and because the check engine light came on. I'm not a mechanic, I know that's not good. But uh, so we got it diagnosed, 
And the auto mechanic said, well, unfortunately, you're going to need a new catalytic converter. So I said, well, how much is that? And uh, I won't repeat what he said. Uh, but I said, you know, let's stick with the oil change and just top off the fluids today. <laughs> so that solved that one problem. But the bigger issue is my, I, we can walk out to the car now, the check engine light's still on. But I've noticed that over the weeks and months that it's on, I don't even notice it anymore. It's there. I don't see it. It's just, it's just not there. So is there things in your life that God has been splashing? Neon lights, people speaking into your life that somehow we've had the ability to just tune out. So let's move on. It says um, in verse 35, we're going to look at some of these specifically. What does these bar the barriers look like? And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, Zebedee came up to him and asked him this, this question. And, and you can read in through the lines, Jesus just told them that he's going to be tortured and die. And the only thing that's really on their mind is all about self and a desire for greatness. That, that's truly what they desire. They desire glory and they desire power. Now Jesus gave uh, both of them a little snippet of this. We covered the transfiguration, which James and John were part of, along with Peter. So they have this idea of glory, transfiguration, coming kingdom, and they want, they want a chief uh, spot. Now it's interesting. I don't want to paint a bad light on these guys, but they come out of this scenario looking pretty bad. You know, because interestingly enough, if you go over to the parallel passage in Matthew 20, it says their mother actually made the request for them. Okay? And the question that the, was asked, you know, they said, you know, you, first, you do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, we could probably go over to the preschoolers and ask them to exegete this passage for us. What does that mean? They know. If you're going to ask your parents something, get them to say yes first. And then you get to tell them what it is, so to speak. But we think it was Mary, you know, Jesus, uh, excuse me, James and John's mother that is with them. Uh, and it's because if you piece together the cross, there's three folks that are uh, with uh, Mary at the foot of the cross. So not only is it their mother... But it most likely is James and uh, um, John, their mother, is Jesus' aunt. And I say that, most theologians agree with that, not with certainty, but if you go to the foot of the cross, Mary is there, and there's three ladies that are pictured with them, in both John, Mark, and Luke. There's Mary Magdalene, there's Mary uh, the mother of James and Josie's. And then the third lady is described three different ways. Uh, in, in John, it says it's Mary's sister. And then uh, in Matthew, he says it's the mother of James and John. And then in Mark, when we, if we followed it through, names her by name, the name of Salome. So 
most likely probably it's one of those things scripture doesn't exactly say but it certainly would make sense as to why they've been with jesus for three years now out of nowhere their mom just pops up and raises this question so perhaps playing a little bit of nepotism route and i would say this they come off looking bad do you remember what jesus he gave james and john a nickname when when he first called them remember their nickname sons of thunder and we see a little bit of that thunder through passages of Scripture. A little while back, Jesus is moving through um, uh, Samaria. Uh, and the Samaritans would not give him a place to stay. And James and John, in the kindness of their heart, asked Jesus if it would be okay if they could call down fire and obliterate the Samaritans. So the sons of thunder here uh, are at work, but asking a very unique question and putting their mom up to do it. Verse 36, it says, And he said to them, much like Jesus does, he always forces us back, and he answers a question with another question. And in verse 37, because he's now going to reveal what's in their heart, he said, And they send a grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right, one on your left. Now, Jesus is going to tell them, they don't fully understand what they're asking for. Now, although we're putting them in a bad light, that's probably something we could relate to, right? Have we ever requested something, really desired something, and it turned out very differently than what we had thought? I, I was thinking through this, and my mind went back about 30 years. A very vivid memory. I was dating my now wife. We were in, uh, I was living in Dallas with another roommate. And his now wife was uh, living in Atlanta. And um, both my roommate and I, we, we knew that the girls we were dating, we were way out of our league. So we, we, Holly lived up here, his roommate lived in Atlanta. They're coming in to visit us. We needed to come up with something creative, right? I, I came up with the idea of let's ride horses because I knew Holly loved to do that. It turned out that my roommate's now wife also did. My roommate was from Texas, Tomball, Texas, for that matter, and he worked at dude ranches uh, on the, uh, each summer growing up. So we were so excited. I, I, we got it taken, and we're going to go ride horses. If you're familiar with Dallas area, way north of Plano, I think the, the rates probably got cheaper the furthest we went. So um, I remember pulling up. And I, mind you, I've never been on a horse before, okay? I, 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 and I'm looking around, and I'm trying to, I, don't, I thought, I was picturing like a little track or something. You know, you see these pictures of people going, there's no track. We're going trail riding. And we're going trail riding through these very narrow wooded area. My horse's name was Freckles. Beautiful horse, white horse with brown spots. Unfortunately, when we started racing, or you'll see where this is going, when we, at the start of this, Freckles bolted. I mean, full-on sprint. I'd never been on a horse before. The only adjective that could describe or come close to my emotional state would be petrified. Because I, I, at that point, I realized I was no longer on Freckles. I am now on Secretariat. 
And I, I closed my, the only thing I remember, I closed my eyes and I was screaming for Freckles to please slow down. I, I, my life was passing before my eyes. I realized that there's no possible way I'm going to survive this. I must say, I have a new respect for horses, but I've never been on one since. So I think there's an illustration of the disciples getting out over the skis here, not fully comprehending what they're asking. But in verse 38, Jesus gives them an example. He says, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized? I want to hone in on the word cup. I think baptized, we are familiar with what that means. Hopefully we witness baptisms in the next door in the sanctuary. And baptism, baptism <laughs> excuse me, means to, to immerse, to uh, identify with, but the cup, what Jesus is talking about here, is the divine wrath that is stored up for us, for those fallen people, those sinners in the world. As you move through the Old Testament, you'll see this over and over again. Cup, divine wrath. Psalm 75, 8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, <laughs> and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Psalm 11:6. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So Jesus is saying there's a cup that is reserved for me that is filled with the wrath of God that's going to essentially be poured out upon him upon the cross. If you're still a little bit unclear of this cup, remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before the crucifixion. He said, Father, he said, if it possible, let this cup be passed for me, but not my will, but your will. So it's important we focus on this. It's Passion Week, Easter around the corner. I want us to fully understand the cross is where God's wrath was poured out on Jesus instead of us. You know, when you think about wrath, I want you to think about what, what Jesus did is the word propitiation. It's a fancy theological word, which means satisfaction. Interesting, you know, 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. We just sang it just a few minutes ago, Right? God's wrath has been satisfied. Maybe if Paula does an encore of that, maybe she could change it and say, God's wrath has been propitiated. I don't think that might sound as well, but when you think wrath, think satisfied, and with what Jesus has done for us. Let me just flip over to Romans 3 here. Much like when we have a gospel, a doctrinal truth in, uh, in the gospels, Paul will pick up on it and explain it a little better for us. I want to be crystal clear about this with it being uh, Easter around the corner. Romans 3.23, verse we're very familiar with. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A lot of us stop there, though, you know. But there's a comma, and it goes on, and it says that after fall, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what Paul's saying here, when we think about what occurred on the cross, God is on both sides of the equation. His ju- he doesn't shirk or put asunder his, his justice. He's a holy God. There's sin that needs to be dealt with, but he's also the justifier because God the Son, Jesus Christ, paid our sins for us. And as you think about that equation, perhaps you maybe struggle with works and salvation. You need to earn your salvation. You'll see there's, there's no place for works in this. It is truly just a work of God. In verse 39, um, Jesus literally answers them. You would think that asking a bizarre question and Jesus knows their hearts and where they're coming from, that he would lay into them a little bit. It, you can't see it in text, but I suspect Jesus looked on both James and John with compassion. Uh, and I say that, and Jesus says, look, you're, you're going to drink a similar type of cup, and you're going to have a similar type of baptism. Because Jesus knows in roughly about 10 years, James will become the first martyr, the first disciple to be martyred. You can read that in the opening portion of Acts chapter 12, where it said Herod Agrippa, you know, murdered, killed James by the sword, with just a euphemistic way of saying that he was beheaded. And then John himself lived a very difficult life, persecuted, and towards the end of his life, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And it's important to note, sometimes when you think about Isle of Patmos, like, let's go there. That sounds... That sounds great. Uh, it is a Roman prison colony. So when you think about the Isle of Patmos, think of like an Alcatraz, so, so to speak. But it's interesting here that both James and John are the bookends of the disciples in terms of the timing of their martyrdom. In verse 41, it says, this is where, you know, come back to that point where Don't underestimate our own depravities and what's in our heart. Like I said, the root of pride in our hearts dies hard. You would think that, you know, Jesus just talked about his death. He would, he would, you know, the other disciples would come to the to the aid of James and John and uh, help a brother. You know, they're they're off and just kind of correct them and in love and so forth. But that's not what they do. What do they do? And hearing this the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Why, why, why such a, 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 just a bizarre emotion? They are absolutely livid. And why are they livid? Because James and John called shotgun on the request. They jumped in the front, front seat before they could. So there's, there's no thoughts of Christ, what's about their cur. God's plan, what he realizes is they're ticked. 
they thought James and John beat them to the best seats in the coming, coming kingdom. So the idea is, when I was thinking through this and saying, there's idols that are like deep in these disciples' hearts who know Christ, who love Christ. And I say, well, what idols are in our heart, once again, that are preventing us from really moving forward and becoming Christ-like and serving him in, in fresh ways? And I think this is an illustration by their reaction and how angry and indignant they were this. I think it's, we could draw the conclusion that the things that upset us the most reveal what's important to us the most. Right? Say it again. The things that make us the most upset will reveal to us essentially what is most important to us. Now, I don't want to be clear. There's some things in our course of life we should be very angry at. The injustice and evil and confronting people. But what about other things in our life? Do we get angry at maybe financially the stock market going down? Does it get you angry? What about parents, your children? Maybe they don't perform or is not as proficient whether academically or athletically or fine arts, are these those subtle things around us that really get us angry, but what, and they shouldn't. But what they are, they're, it's shining a light really on what I believe are an idol in our heart. And in this story of greatness and what they want and everything, it's fairly ironic because ultimately... Everyone is desiring greatness except the one who truly deserves it, which is Jesus. So Jesus now, as he moves into verse 42 or 44, is going to take the opportunity to recalibrate their thinking, to basically redefine what greatness is from Jesus' perspective because the disciples are coming at it from a worldly perspective. Power, glory, prestige, and so to speak. So Jesus is going to attack, really, their uh, infection. Uh, they're infected with a worldly mentality. And he's going to do it with an illustration. He's going to say, you know that those, he's going to juxtapose a worldly view with greatness versus Jesus' view of greatness. You know that those who recognized or recognized as rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Jesus is going to paint a contrast. Now, this would hit home for the disciples because they've lived under Roman rule their entire life. And then when Jesus says the Gentiles lord it over them, you know, this is, they can relate very well. They've never had rights, you know, they're persecuted. And Jesus is saying that's, that's how the world operates. But in verse 30, 43, he says, you know, but it is not so among you, but whomever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. So there's a worldly standard out there, but this is what Jesus says, our standards as believers we should adhere to. And in verse 43 is the word servant there literally means deacon, which I think we're all familiar with and appreciate the deacons that serve here. But as deacon really means just a, a servant. 
And he's saying, you know, James and John and really the others, don't focus on your own greatness, your glory. Take your eyes off yourself and focus on others. To paraphrase verse 43, in Jesus' kingdom, the way to greatness, the way up, is actually down. Actually down. And he's going to move, transition to verse 44 here, and he's going to elevate this idea that we need to be getting our eyes off ourselves and focus on Christ and serve him in unique and fresh ways by saying, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all. What Jesus is saying, kind of verse 43, I would say, you know, it's, it's describing an opportunity to serve, but he's going to transition into 44 and say, no, my followers have an obligation to serve. And that's what he's doing, moving from servant to slave. Because a, a, a bond slave is someone, it's different than just someone who's servant. Let me give you a, 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 maybe some practical applications I, between a, just someone who merely helps to really a true servant. I would say a helper helps others when it's convenient. A servant serves others even when it's inconvenient. A helper helps those, he or she, that they like. A true servant will serve those, even the people that they even don't dislike or don't enjoy being with. A, a, a helper um, helps when they enjoy the work. A servant will serve even when they dislike the work involved. And then lastly, uh, a helper will help typically with a view of obtaining, obtaining personal satisfaction, where a true servant will serve in a way where they're, they're not even expecting. They don't want really any gratitude. They just want to make sure the other person is in a good spot. So Jesus has said to them, get your eyes off yourself, serve in a new, fresh way. So Jesus has confronted their worldly desire for greatness, He's defined, recalibrated a thinking of what true greatness is. And lastly, in verse 45, he's going to provide the ultimate demonstration of what he's talking about. You know, a verse in itself that really summarize, summarizes really the entire Bible, summarizes their march towards Jerusalem. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. You know, the plan of God that was started, or was revealed to us, certainly started in eternity past, back to Genesis 3.15, will reach its culmination with Jesus on the cross. And he says, for even. So Jesus is not excluding himself from this call to serve. You know, because if anyone should be exempt from this type of serving that Jesus is calling each of us to should certainly be God the Son, Jesus Christ himself. But what does he say here? It's interesting. He says, you know, to give his life a ransom for many. Now, ransom, that's a word we, we understand, right? Ransom, it means making a payment to free someone. 
So let's be clear on the theological aspects of, of this illustration, what Jesus is saying. I want to just be clear. Each of us are born in sin. We're born without hope. And the wrath of God, right back to this cup, is, is awaiting us apart from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that we believe in. So Jesus is saying, you know, I will pay the ransom that you cannot possibly pay because you're fallen. It will not satisfy God's wrath. And as you think about this and you reflect on, on Jesus' this Easter week, this is a significant cost. Some of the ransoms we hear, monetary, wow, eye-popping. This ransom literally cost Jesus his life. One commentator just looking at this verse and what it means, God taking, you know, his incarnation, taking on human flesh, dying for us, he described it as the mind-boggling love of God. It's just hard to fully fathom. I'm going to close, actually, with Romans. Back to Paul. Romans chapter 5. Once again, we have a, a biblical truth here. And Paul, Apostle Paul is going to pull it apart for us a little bit. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It says this. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So, just want to close echoing what Paul's saying. You're worth what it costs to save you, and it costs the divine Son of God to take care of the wrath, the propitiation that has been satisfied for us. For those of us that have already embraced Christ, um, I think the message to us this week is to consider, remind ourselves of the cost that Jesus paid to satisfy God's wrath on our, our behalf and use, use that as fuel, as just a way to serve God, serve others on his behalf in just unique, fresh, bold ways to really stretch ourselves. Remember, it's not just an opportunity to serve that we should fill. It is an obligation for us to serve. And for those who are here that have not been ransomed yet, you know, that wrath is still out there, I just pray that you would acknowledge your own sin against God and understand that that wrath is awaiting you, that you would repent of your sins, that you would believe in God's plan of salvation, especially with this Easter, his death, burial, resurrection, which has satisfied God's wrath. 
I pray that God would open your eyes and see that truth. And I just want to assure you, Jesus is ready to pay your ransom today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Um, it's challenging when we read these messages and we could see biblical characters and you know, we could shrug it off, but Lord, it's, it's a reflection of our hearts. So we pray that through this biblical text, our own lives, the deep-seated seated pride that's buried down deep that is causing us to not to see you clearly, to not to see your holiness clearly, to not to see the truth of what really happened on the cross and to celebrate in fresh ways. We just pray that you would just open our eyes and be able to love you more, appreciate the cross, and to serve you in new ways. Amen.